but my daughter just walked in the room. So there's that scarred for life. Dad, yeah. Why are you naked in front of the computer? <laughs> I do have my shirt on guys. Come on. Hello, my friends. Thank you for joining us for the PEBCAC podcast, a weekly information security show featuring some all around good people. It is officially week five of 2022. I'm Chris Louie. And speaking of dessert, with me, I have my co-host, Brain Deech, who I have never actually seen eat anything unhealthy in person. Man, why are you trying to, uh, like, catfish our listeners? I, I definitely do indulge a lot. And, you know, fun fact of the day, if a toy in Toy Story died, all the other toys would know about it, but the kid would just continue to play with its corpse. All right. Well, thank you for that disturbing fun fact. <laughs> I was going to say, we started out dark today. This was a, a, a dark start. Glenn will not be joining us for a bit. He's going through some things in his personal life. He and his family are in our thoughts and prayers. And if any of you know him personally, I know he would appreciate a note of support. We are honored to have Eric Persh as our guest this week, sitting in for Glenn as co-host. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Chris, and uh, thanks for having me. So Eric Persh, uh, quick summary of my past, uh, Marine in my past life. After that, uh, jumped into owning my own um, small consulting IT firm, um, decided I wanted to make um, some bigger impacts for customers, especially in the security realm. So I jumped over into being a, uh, a, a, a security sales engineer. Today, I hold a leadership role at Zscaler where I you know, get to help secure my customers, but uh, also impact people that partner with me as well on my uh, team. So thanks for having me. And that's my quick intro. You might be the first Marine we've had on the, the podcast, right, Chris? Yeah, I think you are the first Marine. So yeah, thank you for your service. And I'm glad you're able to live out the American dream. So by the way, you're not allowed to like up and leave and go start and working at another company since your management material. Got like it. Like did. Got it. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I won't. I'll be, uh, I'll be sticking around. And um, the only thing that it means having a Marine on the podcast means that you guys are going to have to make a lot of edits. So um, we're, we're not the smartest bunch. So I'm just here to kind of listen in and learn from you guys. Yeah, Zoltan was in the army, but he wasn't. In, he wasn't a marine, and I probably shouldn't get the uh, the army marine rivalry started here. So I'm just going to quickly move on and say, combined, <laughs> we have decades of information security experience, and are here not just to educate but to entertain. We've got four awesome stories for you this week. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. For our opening topic, please allow me to rant for a second. I know I take over some of our opening topics to rant, but this one really grinds my gears and there's an InfoSec tie-in here, so bear with me. My daughter is getting old enough to appreciate the game Minecraft now, and she does it at school, so I thought I'd spin up my old Minecraft server and let her play. I haven't played in probably over 12 years, so I didn't have any of the install files, so I tried logging into my Mojang account because I bought Minecraft before Microsoft acquired them, and 12 years ago, I didn't have a password manager in place, so I just had to reset my password. So I reset the password. I know what the password is, but the website still said my email and password were wrong. So I reset it again. I tried different browsers and still nothing. And I know the password was right for sure because when I tried to change it again, it says I can't use a previously used password. Turns out after doing some research on the topic, after password resets or for incorrect login attempts, Mojang locks your account for 24 hours 
and doesn't give you any notice of that whatsoever. And any attempt to log into the account will extend that 24 hours from your last attempt. But first of all, this sets up a huge denial of service opportunity to DOS someone you don't like and just lock them out of their account. And second, it's not like I'm some journalist or political dissidents and dissident and is my Gmail account with their advanced protection program. I don't need to wait 24 hours for a password reset. That just seems dumb. Yeah, this is terrible. Like <laughs> it's one thing to lock it out for 24 hours, but it's a whole nother thing not to notify you and then to keep extending it as you keep trying to, you know, bang your head against the wall. How, how did you actually figure it out? I looked in their support article and it said, you know, what, what to do if you can't log in. And it was the usual stuff, like make sure your password is correct, reset your password. And, that, and, and something like fine print at the bottom, it says that we also lock your account for 24 hours and any attempt to log in will extend that 24 hours. So there's some fine print to it and you really had to read it and just super frustrating. You think Microsoft would have fixed that? Like issue number one, right? Like uh, ER request. <laughs> <laughs> one zero zero one fix this stupid bug or not even bug the password lockout <laughs> policy. So I think Microsoft probably fixed it because you can log in with a Microsoft account or you can log in with a Mojang account. And since I, I, I never tied my Mojang account to Microsoft because I, I hadn't logged in, for, in since they acquired them, Microsoft might have fixed it, but the old legacy Mojang login system is completely broken. That makes it better. But I would think for a company that, uh, you know, goes out and, makes makes a bunch of money their uh their procedures would be a little bit easier to actually use their products but maybe uh maybe they don't want you to log in chris it probably saved you from a little bit of embarrassment too because i'd uh you know hate, hate to see the uh the your daughter kind of dominating you in the game <laughs> so so i know that yeah minecraft has like a huge you know mind share right of, of users but how do they actually make money other than selling the game? Do they have like in-store purchases or like what's the business model around that? It's actually pretty cool. After Microsoft bought them, people were really afraid of what changes they would make if they would, you know, stop microtransactions and things like that. But I think for the most part, Microsoft left them alone. So Microsoft makes money when you buy the game, obviously. And then each person runs their own server. And on their server, you can have any kind of pay model you could have pay to win like you know give me 100 bucks and i'll give you all the best weapons and armor or you can say you know pay me some money i'll give you some cosmetic upgrades so it's really up to the the server owners to determine how they want to make money off it microsoft as far as i know they only make money on the initial transaction and i think they had, might have added some in-game purchases and stuff but the majority of the money is just selling copies of the game okay gotcha well that and all the licensing deals like all the legos and the toys and you know the drill. All right, if we're done with Minecraft talk, uh, for our first topic, I've mentioned on the podcast before that I'm a supporter of the Electronic Frontier Foundation who fights for our online privacy rights. And I don't get out my soapbox much, but this is a cause I feel strongly about. So if you have the means to support them, please do because they do great work. In their recent newsletter, there was an article that this month marks 10 years since the Great Internet Blackout. So for those of you who don't remember, two pieces of legislation were making their way through the U.S. lawmaking system about 10 years ago to allegedly help fight online piracy. The Stop Online Piracy Act, or SOPA, and the Protect IP Act, PIPA, Bills would have forced internet companies to blacklist and block websites accused of hosting copyright infringing content. 
These are bills that would have made censorship very easy, all in the name of copyright enforcement. Major websites like Wikipedia and Reddit went dark for a day to show that what would happen if these laws passed. The message worked and SOPA and PIPA never made it into law. While SOPA and PIPA were ultimately defeated, their spirits still live on today. Censorship comes in many forms, not just takedown requests on copyright grounds. Recently, the social media site Parler got shut down when AWS canceled their account. GoFundMe and Patreon allow support and fundraisers for some political pauses, but some political causes, but bans fundraising for others with no seemingly good reason other than they are politically unpopular. Right to repair laws are also not universal across the world, and if you want your iPhone screen repaired, you have to take it to an authorized repair shop. Ten years later, after the great internet blackout, are we any better off? Well, just going back 10 years ago, I remember, if I remember correctly, wasn't it if you went to Wikipedia or Reddit, it was basically like, hey, we're, we're taking the site down, but you should probably call your local congressman to fight these uh, laws that they're, yeah, or so these fun. political yeah. acts. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was either that or it was just a white screen. I don't remember exactly what, what happened, but the sites were taken offline for a day, I remember. So I'll, I'll just chime in while Eric, you get your thoughts in line. Yeah. I mean, are we better? I guess it's better that those, those two things didn't go into play, but I think that Google, <clears throat> excuse me, has kind of skyrocketed in their power between just the ability to like, I mean, literally that's the, the kind of like the default search engine. And then you have Chrome, right? So even if you were, let's say that brindeach.com was a nefarious website and I was promoting something that they didn't agree with, if you're using Chrome, and you weren't Googling it, you just like literally just typed it in, go to BrianDeach.com. They they have the ability to basically get in between that and say, hey, the site that you're going out to is unsafe. Are you sure that you want to do that? And I'm sorry, but you know, who who are you to really make that that call on my website? I get it that maybe there's some other things that are out there that are bad, but I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of the uh big brother type of ability of of Google across the board. Yeah, I mean, I I remember back um maybe it was about 10 years ago, we used to live on LimeWire, right? I mean, it was, uh, it, it was just, if you didn't have LimeWire and you weren't downloading a, a million songs a day that you shouldn't be downloading, um, you know, you yeah, probably, LimeWire, yeah, Kazaa, you weren't a, you Morpheus, weren't a cool kid, right? Like <laughs> but, um, you know what I have to say about it? I, I think we are getting a little bit better because, um, you know, artists weren't getting paid a lot of the things that, that were being shared illegally. I think it's gotten a little bit better with streaming services, right? It, it's still happening all over the place, but at least now, you know, no big brothers, you know, making us not go do these certain things. But, you know, me, I don't want to go waste the time doing illegal downloads online where I know I can, but I could just pay 10 bucks or 14 bucks a month to go to Apple music and, have my hands on everything I need or, or Netflix or to see all my videos. So I think we're getting better to where at least people that's creating the content has some type of way of, of getting paid where in the past um, there was a big, you know, downfall of, you know, artists maybe not getting paid or video makers not getting paid for the content they put out. Yeah. I can't, I can't even recall the last time I would have used, you know, uh, the pirate bay or something like that. It's literally been that long. I, I, I agree with you on that. They, they've made it so easy. They had to conform, right? They had to change their entire business model on how they were going to distribute that and the music and in movies and videos and whatnot. I think that part 
that flip side of the coin is great, right? Like they've, they, but they're still making money. They're happy with it. I don't like the big brother portion of it and all the control that Google has specifically in everything that we do day in and day out. Do you guys remember the, um, remember the, the Google earth guy who's driving around and on top of like mapping out everything, they were uh, collecting Wi-Fi telemetry and whatnot. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The Google street view cars specifically, I think yeah. they collect Wi-Fi signals and that way when you turn on an Android phone or you open a Google app on your iPhone, it pings every single Wi-Fi network around you. And based on that ping, the signal strength, they can triangulate very close to your exact location just from your Wi-Fi signal. Yeah. And Eric, are you an iOS or an Android person? I'm an iOS person. And if you guys are Android, you know, I might have to, you know, drop off the call. So <laughs> don't worry. You're in a safe place. <laughs> oh, safe I think, place. Uh, I think, yeah, yeah. I think Apple does a pretty good job of it, but I don't, I don't think they're innocent in any of this though, either. They definitely do do it. Uh, people have analyzed the, the telemetry data coming out of an iPhone. They do something very similar to Google. I think the only difference is, and we've, we've talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast. You know, Apple is not an ad company. They're not getting my location data to target me with ads. Like, a Google or an Amazon or a Facebook would. I think Apple has other motives for collecting that location data, but it's not to bombard us with targeted ads. Yeah, I literally hate that. Like, yeah. it's like it, I I sometimes even forget that I look for things like on my like I have my work computer I'm sitting on right now, and I'll just like Google search something and completely forget what I Google searched. And next thing you know, like five minutes later, you know, Instagram or somebody's telling me, Hey, you need to go buy this thing. And I'm like, are these guys in my mind? I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. I had heard on another podcast, you know, this cause I love to beat up or at least pick on Google, right. The, the battle I can't win, uh, that the, the, the slogan don't be evil was actually removed from their company mantra. So I'm, I was trying to figure out if it was still there or not. So or, I'm sorry, it's not, it's still there as of September of 2020. There's the last time it was modified. But according to like Wikipedia, it was it was pulled out in maybe 2018. Yeah, and, and that and Facebook's original slogan was move fast and break things and break things they did. And that really came back to bite Mark Zuckerberg when he was up on Capitol Hill. The robot. Yeah. Yeah. And one more thing I want to talk going back to to piracy. So, Eric, you are correct. I think they've actually done studies that say when Netflix enters a market and people have a reasonable alternative, pay eight bucks, 10 bucks, I think we're up to like 15 bucks a month now here in the US to get all the movies you want, all the TV you want. People don't think it's it's not worth it to them to, to go to Pirate Bay and hope they're not downloading a piece of malware versus just paying the 15 bucks and getting an all you can stream plan. So I think that's on the, on the plus side, yeah, we're fighting piracy in other creative ways but like censorship and takedown requests might not be the best way. Yeah. Netflix isn't a streaming company, guys. This is a security company. They're making it easier for <laughs> people to watch quality content without, you know, infecting their computers with malware. Who knew? Without Brian hosting a, a file, callofduty.exe, that's three megabytes. Like, yeah, this is definitely the Call of Duty game to go download me. Hey, yeah. You know, the, the very first piece of uh, like, I guess, malware that you would ever ca uh, call, call it, I guess was uh, just a simple VBS executable that had, had written in Visual Basic. And all it did was it would cycle 
or loop through opening up the cal uh, calculator.exe or calc.exe until the computer just ran out of uh, memory and just rebooted. So denial of service attack. Yeah. I would agree. I think Apple and, and Netflix um, have saved uh, my computers more than probably I can count at this point. The amount of uh, security tools and malware that I used to have on my machines probably... Um, I probably set records, so I, I, I'm, I'm happy to keep my machines alive a little bit longer now and pay the $8, $10 a month. All right, for our next topic, we are an infosec show and not a political show, so I want to focus on the cyber tells of an impending war in Europe. We may be seeing a canary in the coal mine with destructive cyber attacks against Ukraine, backed by satellite images of Russia moving battalions and troops uncomfortably close to the Ukrainian border. If we remember what they said in Star Wars, a communications disruption can only mean one thing, invasion. The next great war will start with cyber, but it'll be finished with boots on the ground. So-called Whispergate malware was discovered by Microsoft and has been found on computers all over Ukraine. We know from history that Russia commonly tests its malware on Ukraine before unleashing it on the rest of the world. Back in 2015 and 2016, Russia was blamed for hacking the Ukrainian power grid and causing widespread blackouts during the middle of winter. Whispergate is extremely destructive disk wiping malware with wormable capabilities. It pretends to be ransomware, but like WannaCry, lacks any recovery mechanism even if the victim pays the ransom. So are we on the road to war? Is the first thing we're going to see Ukrainian computers just going to shut off and destroy themselves? Well, you know, they say if you have a you, I have a billion dollar idea, what is it? It's war, right? Like that's that's a good way to stimulate the economy. Uh but like how terrifying would this be? Like imagine that someone tried to invade the US, but the precursor to that wasn't what happened at Pearl Harbor. It was like literally we just go dark. We got nothing. We got no cyber Pearl Harbor, cyber Pearl Harbor, but across all 50 states, right? No internet, no TV, you know, no power, no water, just sitting there twiddling your thumbs, wondering what on God's green earth is happening. Then it'll be like red dawn. We'll hear the planes flying over. We'll see troops parachuting into our backyards. Don't parachute into my backyards and it's not going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Certain backyards you'll probably want to avoid. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably you. You could probably avoid mine too. But um, when you know, when I first read this topic, I, you know, my mind first went to like actually using cyber um, attacks in war, right? Instead of starting a war with it, and um, I started to think back when when I spent time in Afghanistan, and you'd walk into any like combat operations center, and you know, you'd see all the the cameras um, for the whole base, and and you'd see you know all the battle plans. You'd have, you know, computers all over the place. And I started to think about it. Like these operations centers are built off of technology. And I would remember we would get, you know, every once in a while we'd have machines go down or webcams go down. We just wouldn't be able to function that part of the plan. So I almost, I almost went to the fact of like, you know, these actually using, um, you know, cyber attacks in war where, you know, these different centers are built by these different things and, having people, you know, put like a whisper gate on machines, um, of the opposing force and right before they invade, 
they set a time detonation that would basically, you know, stop these combat operation centers in their tracks. And now there's, you know, you have to have so many backup methods and different ways that they have to put in place to actually see, um, you know, see the battlefield, see the plans and see what the remediation actions would be. So, so it's, it's pretty crazy to think both ways of how you could use cyber attacks in war and how cyber attacks might be able to actually start war. You, you, you paint a, a terrifying uh, picture. My brother-in-law was over there, both in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he said like the, the airport or where the air force was, was surrounded by an army base, right? Probably similar to like where you were at as well. And he said like they had these balloons that were above the base that would basically signal if there was incoming mortars. Mm-hmm. And if a mortar was coming in, like alarms would sound and you just haul ass. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's get into a bunker. He said he was fortunate in the sense that they were a terrible shot with the mortars. But at the same time, the last line of defense is literally just the sound of a certain death coming your way, which for him, he painted it as a picture of like, it just sounded like a derailed train coming towards the base. Now, if you took away that, that warning mechanism, I, I almost wonder like how much time do you have uh, to scramble and, you know, and, you know, kind of cover your own butt. Yeah, technology is crazy in war these days. Like those balloons do so much more. I mean, webcams, I mean, they have night vision on them. Um, Some of them, you know, even point to where we have defense mechanisms is where we could shoot back off of uh, off of the off of the actual, you know, huge balloons. You can do coordinates and pick where you want to, you know, place certain attacks or certain high Mars or things like that. So, you know, technology is just just massive in war. So to be able to you know, have something like this and might be able to, you know, cripple something for a while. And and maybe you sit back as an attacker, somebody like the U S it's a pretty big military. If you're, um, you know, some smaller military, maybe your first year is just figuring out how do I infiltrate all the computers in these combat operation centers and get to a point where I know I'm going to do some type of disruption, hit a button, black it out and invade, right. That might be one of your best, your, your best ways in. When you think about, like disrupting your enemy's communications, disrupting their ability to get reliable satellite feeds, even disrupt their GPS. Like so much stuff runs off, off GPS. Like, where am I? Where's this missile going? If you can disrupt anything like that, you can completely cripple the opposing force. If you're able to disrupt the technology that they rely on. And if you don't have that, that technology, what do you have? You have a compass, you have a map, you have a flashlight, you have a guy with a pad of paper running over to the the next battalion that could really set back an invading force. For sure. The way this ends to, terribly. Or go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna <clears> say for sure. And in in when when I was over in Afghanistan, they're they're always looking for ways to do this. An example being um, you know, some of the bases will actually use radio frequencies to communicate back to headquarters. Data's going over it, right? It's actually a, a data network. Think of it almost like a, you know, a cell phone communication, but they use point to point lines and a frequency to basically um, transmit data. Well, at one point there was a huge windstorm and it knocked over our, um, our transmission device and they were on really, really high like posts. Well, when these windstorms would happen, you know, moon dust would kick up, which is just, you know, we sand basically in the air, but it's really light sand. You'd hardly be able to see. But when we realized it went down, we're like, oh, crap, we got to go, you know, get this thing. Um, and by the time we got there, it was already stolen. 
So what, what the enemy force would do randomly <laughs> is actually black out our base there because they, they had it and they would hook. We ended up finding it um, like six months later uh, when we when the infantry unit invaded this one area. They would hook it to a car battery, though, and they would rotate the frequencies and find um, what frequency um, that device was using. And, of course, you can't use the same frequency. They'd point it right at the base, and it would actually black out um, at least that transit mechanism um, back to headquarters so um even even you know not so smart technical people know uh, are always looking for creative ways to black out a base wow i think the way that this ends terribly and hopefully the u.s has has this figured out right hopefully anything nuclear is completely air-gapped and there really isn't a way and they've thought about seven ways from sunday on how to prevent that from actually ever being breached you know even like in a stuxnet scenario but the bad part would be like, what if, What about another nation that doesn't really care about air gap stuff? And let's say that Russia decides to pick on them and just has them nuke themselves. Like that's when it becomes disastrous. Yeah, that's some worst case scenario stuff. And we're hoping that doesn't come to fruition. So another fun fact real quick. Uh, as I'm standing here doing this podcast, I have like these uh, Adidas shorts on. They're like made of nylon and they won't stop making scratching noises. So I took them off. Great idea, right? Like you guys don't hear me making noise anytime I move my feet. But my daughter just walked in the room. So there's that. Scarred for life. Yeah. Dad, why are you <laughs> naked in front of the computer? <laughs> I do have my shirt on, guys. Come on. And my chones, but you know what I mean. I'm a little bit uncomfortable now too. Cause I'm just, I got to ask myself, like I meet with you often, right. And in, in our roles. So how often does this actually happen? So is this like a, a once for the podcast thing or like, are we going to be on, you know, hanging out, planning some, uh, you know, planning some, some good stuff for customers and randomly you stand up and I see something I don't want to see. So that's, that's what I'm curious about. I will always have shorts on. Don't worry. Just, I was trying to minimize the background noise as I shift around. Except for today, just for us, Eric. Yeah. We're closer. We're closer I, now. I feel lucky. Yeah. I feel lucky. It's just like it's just like those shirtless man hugs, Brian. We're closer now. Oh God. You want me to pan down? Let's keep this awkward. There we go. Oh, it's kidding. All right. Well, on that awkward note, we can move on to our next story. We have an honorable mention for our ransomware story of the week. The pharmaceutical company Merck finally won their lawsuit against their cyber insurance company. Merck was hit badly by the NotPetya ransomware attack and tried to collect money for damages to the tune of 1.4 billion, so that's billion with a B, 1.4 billion dollars through their cyber insurance carrier. Their insurance carrier argued that NotPetya was an act of war and most insurance policy do not cover acts of war. Food giant Mondel has filed a similar lawsuit against their cyber insurance carrier, and that lawsuit is ongoing. After a lengthy court battle, remember NotPetya was released all the way back in 2017, a judge agreed with Merck that NotPetya was not an act of war as it was written in their insurance policy. I think the key takeaway from this case and the Mondelez case is that cyber insurance carriers will be carefully examining their war exclusion clauses and building in even bigger loopholes in their policies so they will not have to pay out. Do you think they'll up their premiums? Like they'll say, all right, there's an active war clause, but then there's also, if if we see not pet yet and you haven't, you know, protected against that threat, then your policy 
would be an extra 50 grand a month. Or if there's a variant, then it's another, you know, 25 grand a year, something like that. Definitely think there's going to be changes on the pricing side as well, because it's it's not profitable for a lot of these companies. And a lot of the insurance companies are exiting cyber just because there's there's no way to cost model or predict that. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, this is this is such a double edged sword. I would never want to own um, a cyber insurance company by any means, because there you, you can't measure um, a cyber attack. Right. So to be able to give um I'm just curious about being able to give an insurance policy to a company. How do they even do that? Right. Is it by how much the company makes? Maybe it's a technology company. Maybe it's not. Are they in the cloud? I I feel like to give an insurance, um, to give even a policy, you'd have to do a lot of upfront discovery from an insurance company perspective to even make it make sense. I just think at the end of the day, companies just have to do a better job of, of cybersecurity and they got to take it on themselves. Uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit more than, you know, making, um, the clauses or these policies actually, um, not as relevant, but I, I know a lot of companies purchase these. It's gotta be tough for those companies. Yeah. Can you imagine trying to, you already have enough headaches in the world. Now you got the business coming to you and saying, Hey, here's the, uh, the mandate list to keep our insurance premiums at a low. This is what we need you guys to do from a cybersecurity standpoint. Yeah. And some of that stuff just, it won't ever work, right? Like the, the business will push back. Like you could, you know, you know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a, there's a point in time where you have constructed the most secure network that is completely unusable, right? Like you guys wanted it, right? Like no one gets a keyboard or a mouse or even a computer, <laughs> right? You just got to hope that you can think stuff and it will happen. Like that is, you know, that's the only real way to, of, you know, making stuff secure. And this kind of goes back to like, heck, the last 10 years being in cybersecurity, Doing security is tough. It's a game of cat and mouse. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you're going to get played. And if you're a CISO, uh, it's, it's almost like a ticking time bomb. Eventually, you're going to lose your job, move on to the next one. I wonder if it's like all state it's like where... It's like pen and paper. Probably like all state where like they will put little... Um, wonder if they get to a point where you put a little device in your car to prove that you actually drive right. Like... Yeah, I'm wondering if like these cyber cyber insurance companies will use like Shodan or put out some tools in customers environments to kind of look at gaps and and find um you know how secure a company would be. It's pr- you know, almost need to start a business here where you know us three go and and do like cybersecurity audits for these insurance companies and put a price on what their uh, monthly premium should be. There are some insurance companies that are they're going like the homeowner insurance way. Like if, if you have a homeowner insurance policy, if you have a monitored alarm, well, you get 10% off. If you have a fire department within two miles, you get 10% off. If you upgrade your electrical panel, you get 5% off. I, I think they're going towards that model where they say, if you have EDR software, you get a certain percentage off. If you have mandatory security awareness training, you get a certain percentage off. So I think there are some incentives there because they have some data that says if a company has EDR, if a company has secure web gateway, if the company is encrypting or inspecting encrypted traffic, they're X percent less likely to get breached. And then therefore they get a certain percentage off on their premium. So there is some cost modeling available, but there's a huge, huge unknown as well. I think that the next cost modeling would be maybe, maybe they'll call it like the active guide, right? Which is uh, if you get breached because of like a patchy stretch vulnerability or shell shock, something that's been out there for such a long time, 
they're going to call it an act of God because there's no way in hell that should still even be a problem that you're dealing with today. <laughs> I wonder if I, oh, I, I, that's so I, much an act of God or just incompetent, like gross negligence. At that point, it's probably gross negligence, maybe. Well, you know, you just got to let's try to be nice, Chris. But yes, you're an idiot if you get breached by that. <laughs> what was the one that we just saw in December that's going to rear its ugly head? The uh, the one that got the 10 out of 10 on the CVE? Oh, uh, Log4J. Log4J. I guarantee you there's going to be some big ones in that. This year, yeah. Yeah, unpatched Log4J. For our last topic, and it will be a rotating topic every week, this week we're going to talk about our next potential vehicle purchase, either in the near or the distant future. For me, I really want the Tesla Cybertruck, even though it's rumored to have its release date pushed to 2023. I have a project coming up where the ability to move a lot of bulky and heavy stuff would come in handy. The cities I live nearby are getting quite dangerous and people are getting killed by random stray bullets. So the bulletproof windows and doors are a huge plus when driving down the freeway. And lastly, I just like that it's different. Not the Pontiac Aztec different, but a good different. Isn't the Aztec what uh, Walter Walter White had in, in Breaking Bad? Yes, yes, that was the Walter White car. So I'm with you. I, I actually, ha- like, through dumb luck only, I have three Cybertrucks on hold right now. And it wasn't like I was, like, trying to flex on everyone, but, like, yeah, man, I can afford this. It was more of, I was, I was like, the Cybertruck, you know, $39,000 starting price, uh, I can reserve it. And so the night that they announced it, I was trying to reserve it, and uh, it, it kept failing. They had so many people using the website, it was airing out. And the next morning, I had gotten three separate emails. Apparently, as I was clicking refresh and trying, eventually some of them came through. So the good news is I have three Cybertrucks on order. I also got the self-driving for 7500 bucks, And I think it's at ten grand or maybe a little bit over that. Yeah, I think it's 10000 now, yeah. Yeah. But, but other than that, I, I really like the Rivian, the, the SUV. It's not even out yet. I think that has a lot of promise to it. And then if I shift gears, not that these will definitely be my next vehicles, right? I'll, I'll, I'll mix and match, maybe resell. Um, the, the Ford Bronco, they just came out with a Raptor edition of that. And that thing looks mean. It just looks like it'd be like for off-roading, going out and having a good time. I think that might be a, a worthy uh, investment. And that goes in sale this, this, uh, this summer. And the last one that I think I would ultimately come back to if I was in a, not keep it an electric and go with a gas, you know, combustion engine again will be, and it hasn't even been announced yet. So I don't even know if it's even real would be the Raptor dash R, which is supposedly going to be a V8, like uh, take on the Ram TRX and, and show them who's boss. But with that said, there was just a drag race between a, a TRX versus the Rivian truck. And, uh, you know, as the, I don't, you might have to edit this out, but as the, you know, some of the kids on the internet say it clapped his cheeks. Like it was bad news. Like it, <laughs> it, it gapped this thing like crazy. And that, that's a, that's a truck with like 707 horsepower versus a, an electric, uh, iPad. You know what I mean? With the wheels for, for the Bronco. Are you thinking a uh, white color Bronco? So, you know, in Arizona, the only color to own is white cause it's so damn hot. So yeah, you're, you're probably right. I was thinking that'd be good. You could offer a service where you can like pick up fugitives and go on high speed chases in your white Ford Bronco. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Who was driving that day with OJ? 
It was his buddy. It was another football player. Yeah, Cal- Calvin something, I think. No. It was it was another no. running back. All right, as the show's got to go silent as we drive. all look yeah. this up at the same time. That's what we were doing. Yeah, everybody's getting on Google at the exact same time. So I'll just let you guys do it. Al Cowings. Yeah, Al Cowings. Yeah, you know, all right. I'm, I'm a big vehicle person, um, but, you know, right now I I had to, you know, get, spend some money and let my wife get her dream vehicle because she uh, does a lot for the family, stays at home, so I can do what I can do. So it was my wife's turn. We got her a, uh, you know, she's a big Jeep fan. We got her a Rubicon Jeep, and I just got a uh, JKS lift put on that for her and some real mean um, wheels and tires. And so um, that was my big vehicle purchase and she loves it. It's actually a diesel too with like 600 foot pounds of torque. So the thing, uh, oh, wow. pretty awesome and runs pretty well for me. Um, we're big on camping and outdoors. So I always have to keep like a 2,500 diesel truck to pull our, our camper and stuff. So that, that I'm, I'm kind of stuck on, um, that vehicle. So for my fun, I always own a uh, motorcycle. So right now I have a, uh, 114 Harley that I like to ride around for fun, but, um, I always big in, you know, electric cars. I, I always wanted to get like a Tesla. I've looked at them a hundred times. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm big on like, they're making all these like electric off-road vehicles which i'm kind of interested in so tesla made like the uh the electric four-wheeler and there's a lot of electric bikes coming out and the uh the launch on those things are just ridiculous um to the point they have to tune them down instant torque yeah you you basically have to tune down the vehicle if you were to like hack into it and tune it up it would basically just you know leave your body still and it would take off so got some cool interests there that i might look into here in the future yeah, there's an emergency room visit button. You just push this button on this quad, and you're you're gonna visit the ER. <laughs> guaranteed, so guaranteed so, emergency so, room. On Star, <laughs> should we send an ambulance? <laughs> Pretty much. So, uh, two questions for you, Eric. So, on the Jeep, did you do 35s or 37s? And then, as for the trailer uh, that you're pulling, did you buy that pre or post, or I guess pre-pandemic or during the uh, pandemic? Yeah, good question. So. For for the the Jeep, um, this is a super tough decision. I'm a big fan of uh, of 37s, but my uh, wife drives it all the time as a daily, and and she's owned a lot of Jeeps in her past, and we've had some with 37s on it. Um, we went with 35s on this one um, just because. Man, the 37s when you get on the highway and the maintenance and changing the gear ratios, um, it's kind of a pain in the butt. So we um, we actually kept her old Jeep um, where it's kind of like our beater Jeep now. Um, it's a two-door and it's on 37. So we'll probably use that one more as the the off-road Jeep. And then the the Jeep we just got will be her uh, grocery getter. <laughs> did you go with the the, the Nitto uh, Ridge Grapplers or what, what tire did you go with? No, I can't even remember um, the tire we ended up going with. So with COVID, there was like all these issues with, you know, supply on tires and rims and, and all this stuff. So I used to go with the uh, the Bridgestones. They make a really good, like aggressive all-terrain that I really liked. Um, this time around, I can't remember. I remember I bought those and um, I kind of got a call back from the company I was buying them off. Like, Hey, this is going to take another six months. So I said, Hey, give me, um, give me the best all terrains that are really aggressive that I'm not going to regret buying for my wife. Cause she's horrible at rotating tires. So they, they gave me one and I'll have to uh, follow back up with you on which one it was. I can't remember. 
Eric, do you ride your Harley in the winter? It's like, is it, do you get the heated hand grips and the heated vest and everything? No, no, no Harley in the winter. It's, it's, it, it hangs out in the garage. Um, we get so much ice and snow here, it'd basically be a uh, death sentence on that thing. So, um, I get to ride it basically four months out of the year, which, uh, I'm from PA. So that's why it, it's, uh, you basically as uh, swimming pools, bikes, campers, anything fun, you spend a lot of money on and get to use them for four months. Four months. <laughs> so one third of the year. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Well, for the five listeners we have left that sat through Jeep Talk, we continue to get great comments about our dad joke of the week. Dad joke of the week. This week, our guest Eric is up. I, I, I searched long and hard. I felt like this was the most important part of this podcast. So I spent a lot of time on this and put a lot of thought behind it. And I had to make it technology based, right? So, um, because it's a security type podcast. So, so here, here it is. What's, what's Forrest Gump's, um, new password. Jane. What's that? I don't know. Number one, Forrest number one. And if you put it together, it's one Forrest one. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. Wah, wah, Where the wah, hell wah. is the capital letter and the exclamation mark? I am against this. This is poor opsec. It's very poor. And and when no you special character, when you look at the article, like where I found this joke, because I I went through like ninety five sites to find this perfect one. It was um all lowercase forest too. So it was uh it was it was pretty depressing to see. Lieutenant Dan would be pissed. That's yeah. all I'm gonna say. He, he would be very, very disappointed. Good joke. Poor OPSEC. <laughs> Nerds. <laughs> all right. To wrap things up, Minecraft's password reset system is all messed up. We've basically gone nowhere for online copyright law in the last 10 years, other than providing streaming alternatives. Destructive cyber attacks in Ukraine may indicate an invasion is coming. Merck won their lawsuit and successfully argued NotPetya was not an act of war. And we hope the Cybertruck does not get delayed another year. That's all we have for this week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find us all on LinkedIn. Links will be in the description. Follow us on Instagram at Pebcac Podcast. Thank you to all our listeners and subscribers who rated us five stars in the iTunes store and Spotify and left us a review. We appreciate you all spreading the word to help grow the show. The best way to find us is to search for the Pebcac Podcast on your favorite podcast listening app. For my co-host Brian Deach and our guest Eric Persh, I'm Chris Louie. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week. And as always, have a nice day. Bye, y'all. Have a nice day. One, Boris, one.